0: Once you hang around with people who are different, you will become different.
1: Voices that did comfort me are furthest from my sanity and come from places I have never seen, even in my darkest recollection there was someone singing my life back to me. This verse is from one of my all-time favorite songs by Nico Case called Guided by Wire. I am often guided by these words when I think about how we need each other to remember who we are, especially in times of crisis, and how to find one's voice in a world that can stigmatize and oppress people simply for dancing to a different tune practical theologian John Swinton is also a champion of difference, a humble and firm advocate for encouraging often stigmatized voices and ways of being to flesh out our experience of being human. John graciously sat down with me during a recent teaching visit to Vancouver to talk about faith, mental health, and all the ways in which our culture, particularly church culture, can exclude those whose voices whose songs, whose lives don't fit the standard format. He offers up some new ways of seeing in which difference and disability are welcomed, embraced, and understood as a valid way of being fully human and fully alive to the possibilities of God. So, John, a lot of your work revolves around ways of seeing Mm -hmm. and how our culture has certain stories around people with disability. And a lot of what you do is to actually challenge those narratives and those stories and offer people a different way of seeing. So can you tell me a little bit about when that shifted for you? When did you discover a different way of seeing around disability and mental health?
0: Yeah, I I, I never consciously did. And I have wondered about that. I mean, for me, the reason that I see disability and mental health the way I do is because most of my life I've been with people who look at the world in very, very different ways. People with psychotic experiences, people who don't have language, people with with dementia who really are entering into places that none of us really know, whether they're good bad, but but they're they're on a journey to somewhere uh, that is mysterious. And by being alongside people who see the world differently in that way, you you begin to see things differently because you ask different questions and you begin to tell different stories about things that seem to be obvious. but I also began, to, when it's something to do with getting older, I began to realize that, you know, culture fools you, that you're told what you should believe and you're told what you should see and you create a kind of imagination that is given to you by the media or given to you by politics or whatever it is, which means when you look out in the world, you see everything that everybody tells you to, to see. That. And it always struck me that when the Apostle Paul talks about transforming your mind, it's something about just looking at the world differently, allowing these narratives from Scripture to give you a different form of imagination, a different perspective in the world. And then when you look out, you just see things completely differently. So in some senses, you're you're liberated from the hidden oppression of being told what you think you should be seeing. And so I, I never sat down one day and thought, I need to look at the world differently. But if I think about it, it's because of that. It's because you get different perspectives from people who... See the world differently,
1: and um, so how do you see disability then?
0: Well, I see disability as one of these things that it seems very obvious. Actually, it's not obvious at all because disability is simply a cultural marker for for difference. It's you know it's a consensus uh, that we come to that certain things are normal and certain things are not normal, um, but there's no particular reason very often for that. So, for example, if you take something like down syndrome right at one level you could say or or intellectual disability in general why would we have a category called intellectual disability I mean, why is it, why does it matter about your intellect? If you had a, a you had a, a society that wasn't particularly interested in, in, in intellect, but was more interested in community and relationships and being with one another, then the category intellectual disability would be meaningless. So although it's necessary perhaps for, to access certain services and to help people to have their meet, their needs met, it's actually just something that people make up. And it's up when we make these things up very often they become quite negative, quite pathological. So disability for me is a way of naming difference but not necessarily the best way of naming difference.
1: Yeah, and you once talked about the church as um, the body of Christ is a place of difference and yet the church often tries to make it about sameness.
0: Yeah, there's a kind of homogeneity about the way that the church thinks about what disciples are and what communities are. But, you know, the uh, if you read what Paul says about the body of Christ, it's diversity that makes the body of Christ. It's not uh, the fact that we all look the same, feel the same, think the same, or are the same. It's our differences. And it's when we begin to come together and live uh, into our differences that the body of Christ becomes something spectacularly interesting. You know, there was a missiologist in the in the 70s 80s called Leslie Newbegin, who wrote a book, a book called uh, The Gospel in the Pluralist Society and the last chapter in there if I remember correctly is called The Church is the Hermeneutic of the Gospel and in there he says basically that when people look at the church they should see Jesus so when they look at the church the church should be that place that interprets and lives out the gospel so that when you look at Luke and they think oh, yeah there's something really really different And part of the question is whether it does that, but part of what is really, really different is you should see a group of people who are radically different in so many different ways coming together, recognizing that they are one in Christ and living a life of love and forgiveness and joy uh, uh, in the name of the God that they claim to be worshiping. So, I think whether we do achieve that or not, that's a question, but that idea of becoming the hermeneutic of the gospel, I think, is important. And part of that hermeneutic, that interpretive process, relates to uh, learning to live into difference, and live creatively with difference, and recognizing that difference is actually a very good thing, in principle.
1: Yeah, and a lot of people find that very painful and difficult, right? Um, there's this idea, it's almost like the church, and this is the work of organizations like Sanctuary to kind of bring awareness to the church Mm -hmm. around how to care for people. And in this context, we're talking more specifically about mental health. Mm -hmm. But there's a sense that there's a message that all are welcome. And yet the culture of the church actually doesn't bear that out. Um, I remember recently, there's a a church on the highway that I pass by and they've got a huge banner that says come as you are. And I immediately went, really? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Can you talk a little bit about that as a practical theologian, how you see the ways in which the church is harming and maybe helping in terms of mental health and disability, like making that space where difference is actually celebrated
0: or not? Well, I mean, I think that people don't really think about the these kind of contradictions and tensions, right? because they're quite implicit and quite subtle sometimes. Sometimes they're very obvious, but not. So, forgive me if I can give you an example. The um, few years ago, we did a, a project uh, looking to develop a way of accessing the spiritual needs of people with profound intellectual disabilities. Like, so, people who don't who don't have words and who aren't able to symbolise in the way that many religious traditions assume they should, they should do. And we're kind of have, just have, we hang around with, with people in their families for a while. It was really really interesting. Just getting to know people and seeing how people communicate. Um, but I always remember this this one congregation where this young guy who had a significant intellectual disability, and uh, also had cerebral palsy, but he was really involved with it. And it was an active, it was a lively church. It was a very charismatic church. Uh, and the, uh, the, the family were very happy until uh, the minister decided to begin a healing ministry. Now, it wasn't the healing ministry that was the problem. Because they were of the view that, you know, if God wants to heal, then God can heal. And that's that's a great thing. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, the problem was that the theology behind the healing ministry was that uh, disability was caused by transgener- trans- trans- transgenerational sin. And therefore, you had to get into that trans- transgenerational sin before you can actually free this young man from his his, his condition. Um. And that was terrible for them because they they were then put in a position where they were part of that community because nobody really changed their attitude to them. But that theology meant that they were part of it, but never part of it. You know, all that, all these, the many years that they'd been there, they they assumed that they were just being accepted. But underneath was this theology that was clearly brought to the surface by the the introduction of a particular mode of healing uh, ministry, but actually had always been there. And so you get that hidden trope. That people will accept people but at the same time underneath you're not really belonging to that community and there's that tension between acceptance and belonging that's, that's really important So I think it's a theological issue, because I don't think people do that uh, out of a sense of malignancy. I don't don't think they're they're trying to be unpleasant to people. I think that they're either, it's never been on their horizon to think about uh, the the kind of things that disability theology talks about. And it's never been in the past as training to be trained to think other than that which tradition normally uh, says in response to human difference or response to disability or illness or whatever it is. So I think that's the reasons for it. And I, 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 am, I, mean, I would emphasize that I don't think people are trying to be nasty or unpleasant, but then you don't have to try. <laughs> Sometimes it just happens. Like,
1: yeah. yeah, well, it's that um, kind of ingrained worldview, right? It is. That we yeah. just take for granted, Yeah. that everybody will engage with discipleship in the same way, Yeah. Um, that the outcomes will be the same. Yeah. And you know, you were touching on healing. Um, can you talk a little bit about healing and mental health specifically things like psychosis and depression and you know, how do you see the church being effective and caring in that regard?
0: Uh, My my sense is we need to rethink our understanding of, of of healing in quite significant ways because um, we, uh, we in this case being Western Christians, we have a really highly medicalized culture and so we, go straight to medicine whenever we find something's wrong. You know, it's 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 interesting that as soon as you think about health and illness, most of us think about medicine in some way. When most of the healing in society doesn't go on in the medicine. The professional sector is a very small sector. Most of it goes in your friendship, your relationships, your your chums, your family. Um and so we have a mindset then that uh, uh to the models of health and healing that come to us from medicine are the way that health and healing should be understood. And so medicine tends to think, uh, or there tends to be a push within medicine that health is understood as the absence of illness. And so therefore healing is getting rid of that black spot, that dark spot, the, the, the spot of pathology within you. And then you move towards, uh, healing. And if you, <coughs> and if you move to a health, a health, and if you transfer that into the church's healing ministry, which I think people very often do, then you kind of have a medicalized theology that looks around for pathology and tries to fix it by taking it away. And so the idea that you learn to live with your illness is one of the. And I'm doing a project just now on, on uh, mental health, Christians and mental health. And one woman with severe depression said to me, "The turning point for me was when I was able to befriend my dep- depression and learn that it's not going to go away." but I have to work out how I can live with it. But that doesn't make any sense if you have a, a healing ministry that's based on on a medical model in that way. Then. So my general sense is that we need to think slightly differently about what health and healing looks like. And so I always go back to that kind of biblical understanding of health, uh, which is shalom, because the Bible doesn't have a, a, an understanding of health in that biomedical absence of illness way. The closest is the word shalom, and the word shalom has to do with righteousness, holiness, right relationship with God and that includes friendship and community and prosperity and all sorts of different things but the key thing is that health is being in right relationship with God. So health is a relational concept which would mean if you are you know, a, a hedonist or a fantastic Olympic athlete you could be really really unhealthy and you could be somebody that's in the midst of a psychotic experience or you can be at the end of your life and you can be profoundly healthy and I think if you th- think about it that way then healing becomes something different it's not just me running around looking to try to be back for ways I can fix you um, and then blaming you when you're you not know, fixed because you don't have enough faith or whatever whatever way you want to frame it. It's actually to do with me keeping you connected with Jesus. So what do I do in the midst of what you're going through that can ensure that you can be kept in touch with Jesus, who is shalom in that way? And that takes you into a whole different way of thinking about relationships, community, and all these different things. Now, it may be that, that, that I'm not saying that God doesn't heal, because it's very clear that Jesus has a strong healing ministry, um, and it's probably worth thinking about what that means as well, uh, and that people that God can do what God wants to do. My point is that that's not necessarily indicative of the way in which we frame health and not, not, not uh, 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 limiting of the way that we understand healing.
1: So there's a a Canadian singer named Nico Case, and she writes a song about depression, actually. And one of the lines is, even in my darkest rec- recollection, there was someone singing my life back to me. Right. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about, you know, we've defined healing as connecting people to God, but also making sure that they have a place mm-hmm. in community. Can you talk a little bit about what, what it would mean for a church to tell a different story and to actually practically engage and, and sing someone's life back to them in the context of faith.
0: In the context of depression. Even.
1: Yeah, or you know any kind of mental health challenge that um, can often be isolating, right?
0: Well, just sticking with depression, one thing that churches can probably do well is stop assuming that happiness equals faithfulness uh, and that if, when you're in worship, it's a lovely thing to be happy, but that doesn't necessarily define what the presence of God looks like or feels like. Because one of the thing I th- things I think that troubles people with living with depression is that particularly those of us who are charismatic, which is me, uh, the, uh, the kind of worship that I like, uh, you know, it tends to be vibrant, exciting, and very, very positive, which makes it really difficult to be sad in the midst of that situation. and um, that that can be that can be tough. And I uh, I spoke to a woman recently who just was articulating exactly that. She'd lived with depression for for many years. <clears throat> Excuse me, uh, and she was, she was saying how difficult it was to be in worship when everybody else is happy and when she's feeling miserable. Uh, And she was saying that the way in which her worship leader began to deal with that was by introducing this lament, lamenting to worship, using the Psalms of Lament as a way of articulating the sadness and as a way of um, allowing people to have the full range of emotions within the, the context of worship and not simply assuming that everybody should be happy at every moment in time because nobody really is. And so that's, in a very literal sense, that's a way of of singing the Lord into your experience in the midst of sadness and tragedy and brokenness. But what was also interesting about her was that she said she didn't want everybody else to stop doing that. She she wants she wanted I think I, remember how she put it she said uh, she wanted people to hold her happiness for her even though she can't feel it herself right? so that when she comes to that space where she can engage in a different way there's always that space held open for her so she needs to lament she needs sadness but she also needs people to hold her in the joy of the community and right? um, I think it's something powerful about that, that even in uh, our most intimate worship times, we need one another uh, to do the things that we can't do ourselves.
1: That's very moving for me personally. Um, Just thinking about how, you know, if you've been a Christian for a while, you engage with church in different ways, and sometimes um, when you're going through a difficult time, you might. Decide not to go because it doesn't match your mood or what you're suffering with So thinking about the church as a place that is holding space Mm -hmm. For difference and for suffering and for lament and for happiness. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, that's a that's a pretty big challenge especially um, in the evangelical church model where you have um, a a couple of triumphant songs and then you have announcements and then you have a a time where everybody has to sit quietly for an hour to listen to a sermon and then you have a go out there and bless the world. Right. You know, it that's like to me I see that as a kind of a direct challenge to the way that we actually do our services, um, as a church. And for some people that can be difficult to come to because you're you might be used to a particular form of worship. So how have you seen have you seen that play out? Um in the church world, like uh, being able to change the actual flow of the service to accommodate difference? I,
0: some churches do, because some churches have an awareness. that, that when, The thing that I, you, I suppose we always have to bear in mind is that the place of liturgy, your, your, your service, worship, is a place of formation it shapes and forms you into the kind of disciple, the kind of person that you are. So if you're only getting one dimension of uh, human life or human formation in your uh, worship life, which is just you've got to be happy, you've got to have the theology of glory, you've got to be there, then that, that actually doesn't form you well as a human being. It doesn't form you well as a Christian because it seems to me that when we think about the nature of joy, for example, it's very clear that joy includes suffering. Uh, it's very clear also that joy is not just happiness, joy is being with Jesus and the presence of Jesus, which inevitably involves suffering, and, and the book of Hebrews is very full of that, that way of thinking of things. So actually if you have a liturgy that doesn't involve and include the, the whole breadth of human experiences, then you may produce uh, disciples who are excited for a time, but when they encounter deep sadness and brokenness, either they have to pretend to be joyful, um, or they fall over, yeah, or, or fall away. Uh, and so I think, although in the short term it's, it's nice to feel great, and I, I think it's good to feel like, man, I like I like going to worship. I love worship, raising my hands. I, I love the feeling of being sent out into the world to to participate in the things that God's doing. But if that's all it is, and if there's no space in there for suffering, faithful suffering, and faithful sadness, then uh, we we uh, we have a problem. Like,
1: So then let's talk a little bit about, um, this idea that being human is a broad range of possibilities and how people who are dealing with a mental health problem or, or a disability, um, how they can contribute then to the body of Christ.
0: Oh, that's funny, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, Because now I can't for the life of me remember who it was that, that, uh, Talked about mental health challenges as no casserole illnesses. <laughs> if, if you've got right, friends yeah. of people are bring you a casserole, <laughs> if you've got schizophrenia, people don't bother. Yeah, um, right. But it's also, uh, there's a tendency for it to be a non-vocational condition, like a you know, set of experiences. Uh, so if you have cancer, people because very easily say, this is your vocation, you're going to learn things about God through this, and you're, God's going to teach you, and you'll be able to teach other people. If you have some, something like schizophrenia, uh, people find it very difficult to think that you have a vocation, that you have a calling from God to do anything other than be ill. Uh, but if you speak to people with who live with, with uh, Christians who live with psychotic uh, disorders, very often they feel they're called by God to do certain things. And of course that will become pathologized. If, if I say to you, if, if you think I have, I have bipolar disorder and I say, see, I'm called by God to do something, you're going to say, yes, you, that's your bipolar disorder. So I think we don't listen enough. We don't pay enough attention to what it means to be a disciple and to have a severe mental health disorder challenge and how you can hold these two together without having to think they have to fix this person before they before they can do so before they can actually participate in the things that God do. Because the reality is people with uh, enduring mental illness or, or bipolar disorder or, or certain modes of, of schizophrenia, they're always going to have that. Uh, The key is how can you live well and live faithfully in that. How can Jesus' words, when Jesus says, I come to bring life in all of its fullness, what does that mean for people who uh, live with these kinds of experiences? And I think we don't pay enough attention to to what that actually looks like and what that actually means. Because every disciple has a vocation and that doesn't change because you get a bit sick.
1: And so, how would that look? Um, I, I'm sort of pushing your practical theologian button here. Oh yes. <laughs> um, how would that look then to include people in in the church whose vocational abilities might be different than your discipleship program?
0: Well, it's funny. I've got, I have a PhD student just now that's looking at discipleship and found intellectual disability, and that's that's exactly the question that he's asking. Because what he's noticed is that most of the discipleship programs are have an assumption that you have a certain level of intellect and you're able to believe certain things and do certain things, then you can become a disciple. So he uh, he's kind of given that a bit of a push. But I, I think that you can, you can begin to help people find the vocation by enabling them to participate. So if we were talking about liturgy, uh, if we were, for example, to Enable people who lived with enduring depression to create liturgical ro- resources for the church, then that would be a very interesting way of, you vo- of using your vocation. I was at a, ca- a conference at Calvin College uh, last year. or Was it this year? I get confused. It was missing last year. I know. I'm sorry. The uh, and uh, and the uh, there was a session on mental health and liturgy, and on that there was people with mental health challenges who had written. Uh, sermons, written liturgy, literature, used the psalms and lament in, in a variety of different ways uh, and just gave a completely different perspective on what it means to worship together from this perspective. So I think at the, at the level of, of worship that you know beginning to have that liturgical involvement is one way in which certain people can do that. Then. Um, and I think the other way in which we can begin to think about um, f- discovering people's vocation is by moving away from the idea that people with mental health challenges are simply uh, a responsible in t- a responsibility in terms of pastoral care and begin to think that it's a responsibility, our being the whole body of Christ, in terms of discipleship. What does it mean for somebody to have extraordinary an unconventional mental health experiences, and still to be walking with Jesus. How do you incorporate that into the way in which you teach people what it means to be a disciple? You know, I was sent. I was sent to class yesterday. That there was, there was a guy called um, John Hull who many years ago wrote a paper, um, which uh, titled um, "He Was Blind." The paper was titled. Um, could a blind person have been a disciple of Jesus and his conclusion was no because Jesus would have felt obliged to heal him because it would be a bad witness uh, and there's this, that same dynamic runs within it. the temptation would always be okay you have endurance schizophrenia I'll fix you and then you can come to Jesus but that's 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 not the, that's not the uh, uh, that's not the right dynamic so to get away from that and to begin to rethink discipleship within a variety of different contexts I think is the challenge. Uh, um, it's a difficult challenge but I think it opens up space for discovering the nature of vocation in unusual places.
1: And it's almost like this idea of telling different stories. Um, The classic conversion narrative is you are um, not connected to God, you might have had some drastic experience in your life, and then you meet God, and then everything is okay, <laughs> and yeah. you're healed, and then you go out and be a witness. Yeah. But actually, if we told a different kind of story of a conversion narrative, yeah. where someone, for example, has been living with schizophrenia for 20 years, and is a integral part of the prayer ministry, yeah. and is you know, living in community and encouraging others and is a peer support to other people who are struggling with schizophrenia, yeah.
0: right? It, precisely, yeah. that's exactly right. Yeah. Because one thing that, that people do ha- have when they go through these sometimes very difficult experiences is people develop a sensitivity that other people don't have. They understand uh, and empathize with people's situations in ways that other people can't because they haven't been through that situation. the key, The key would be how can we as the church together tap into that expertise and and enable that sensitivity to become part of our overall pastoral strategy of being together.
1: And sensitivity takes time, hey? Yeah. And patience, and it it sort of moves you away from developing a product into looking at a person, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Sanctuary Mental Health Ministries exists to equip the church to be a sanctuary for all people at all stages of their mental wellness journeys. May this podcast encourage you to create safe space for your own story and the stories of others, as well as create change in communities that stigmatize those suffering with mental health challenges. The Sanctuary Course is a small group resource designed to help initiate and guide conversations about mental health and faith. It is a starting point, creating a base of shared knowledge from which churches can explore the next steps. Perhaps most importantly, through the simple act of talking openly about mental health, the Course helps churches begin to create safe spaces for people to share their mental health stories and receive support in community. Each theme in the course is explored from a psychological, social, and theological perspective, and each session is accompanied by a compelling film focused on an individual's story, a person of faith who has journeyed through mental health challenges. Interested in exploring the Sanctuary Course for use in your community? Learn more at sanctuarymentalhealth.org sanctuary course and use the code Sanctuary Podcast to receive 25% off in the checkout process. So let's talk a little bit more about medication. (laughs) Um, We kind of delved into healing a little bit but um, for example, someone who's hearing voices um, and then goes on medication they might actually have a loss of community in the sense that they've lived with those voices for many years. That's right. Um, So how do you square um, your understanding of of human biology and healing and faith and medication? This is a big question, but we can kind of get into it because I think this is one that a lot of Christians, especially in North America, wrestle with. You know, it's either you get prayer or or you get medication and the two are not mutually exclusive, but I know I grew up in a tradition where they were, Mm -hmm. right? So tell tell me a little bit more about your thoughts on that. That's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we can talk a bit about... So um, disability um, is defined as um, not being able to participate in a certain kind of culture. right? So you, it's considered inability in our cultural framework. Um, but then how does medication kind of yeah, no, come I, into I, that? I understand.
0: Yeah. There's, there's, so there's, there's, two, there's two aspects to that that would be useful to, to talk to. The one in relation to people with psychotic illness I think is actually very important because the temptation is to assume that a person's voices are uh, profoundly negative and that somebody wants to get rid of them and sometimes that's the case because sometimes it can be but you know when you begin to speak to people who hear voices then you know that there's some voices that are helpful, some are unhelpful, some are dangerous, some are not. But the point is that for many people it's the only community that they have and so unusual and distant as that might feel, if you simply give somebody medication to get rid of the voices, then you actually end up alienating the person because there's nothing else. Like you know, It's like if you take away a delusion and don't replace it with, with a positive identity, you need, you, you, you're nothing else. So you can, at one level, you can have, you can you can it can appear that you're doing the right thing. So according to certain modes of, of healing, you would be doing the right thing. You get rid of that, these voices because they're meaningless uh, uh, entities. But another dimension, the subjective dimension, you're actually doing something completely different, which could actually be quite harmful. The key would be to um, uh, hold these two things in tension: that you, uh, if you're the, the, the prescriber, then you take full cognizance of the meaning of the experience, along with the medication, and use the medication to help the person in their fullness, rather than simply to, to uh, get rid of that which seems to be most. Obvious. so I think it's that relational sensitivity and moving away from uh, mere symptoms to relations to, to experiences that uh, helps people to, to be better ways of prescribing in that kind of situation. Um, in another sense, medication can be extremely helpful spirituality, spiritually. Um, and so one of the uh, one of the participants in the study I'm working on just now. Uh, he lives with uh, double depression which is a new diagnosis it's an American diagnosis which means that even when he's well he is a level of clinical depression that for most people would be clinical depression Uh, and he talks about having like various levels of of, um, encounter with depression so when he's at level one He's able to function quite well. Level two, he's able to read scripture and he can sometimes use the Psalms of Lament to articulate his sadness and brokenness. But when he gets to level three, he can't do anything at all. It's right? because it's so dark, it's so the pit is so low and so inescapable that he can he can't do anything. Uh, and I asked him, "What do you do to get out of that?" And he said, "Drugs, medication." I didn't mean medication. Um, he says, there is absolutely no way that I can come back to any kind of spiritual norm unless I have medication. He says, it's it's kind of like, he says, it's like um, all Christians are, are kind of climbing a spiritual wall. Some people get to the top through particular ways. I need medication at least to get me on that journey so that I can get to that space where I, I can at least feel myself and, and feel God in that way. And so, in that context, um, uh, medication really functions as a spiritual practice because it releases somebody from that loneliness and alienness and darkness and brings them to a, a space where they can at least begin to open up to the possibility of re- reconnecting with god in that way so it functions spiritually um but of course there's, there's problems with that does that mean that we just take drugs in order to get closer to god but that's not that, that that's that's that I've, people have said that to me and i say that's a kind of flippant response that doesn't understand what depression is um and so i think that's something interesting about that i think there's also something interesting in terms of spiritual care in general that it's not necessarily doing uh learning a new set of competencies is very often doing what you're doing already but just seeing it slightly differently and I think to go back to the the, the issue of giving medication for voices, it's just doing what you're doing already but doing it slightly differently opening yourself up to the interpersonal dimensions of the process of medicating and then seeing what that looks like
1: yeah again it kind of brings us back to this theme of telling different stories yeah making space for difference. Yep. Um, So in your own journey, um, we all kind of go through different levels of passion and and interest and Mm -hmm. and burnout. Um, Where are you on that road at the moment? Because you've been doing this work for a long time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting old. Where am I at this moment? I, uh, I still love it. I still find it really interesting I still have a passion. and I, when it, The one thing I have found in my life is my vocation. Like, I know what I do is the right thing to do. I know what I'm doing is the right thing to do. Whether I do it well or not, it's not the point, but it's the right thing to do. So for me, uh, it's been a long and interesting journey from uh, driving vans to <laughs> yeah. being a nurse, to being a chaplain, to being a, an academic. Uh, and actually, you know, it's, it's, it's a strange thing because if I look back at what I thought I would be and what I'd be doing 30 years ago and what I've ended up doing now, there, there's no connection in my mind. It's, it just doesn't make any, the slightest bit of sense, really. And I think vocation is a little bit like that. You know, sometimes we think of vocation as, as your, like your career path. And if you don't get it right, then you, you know, God's going to get one path for you. And if you don't get it right, then you, 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 you know, you're going to be disappointed for the rest of your life. My general sense and my general experience is that vocation is to do with simply listening. Uh, And sometimes you listen better than others. Uh, And if you don't listen, if you find yourself going in the wrong direction, God very often takes you back to a different place, not necessarily the same place, but... I think God's got the flexibility about his vocational thinking that actually Christians very often don't have. <laughs> and so, uh, I mean, you, you can't gauge the world through my story, but but certainly in terms of what I've seen in life, I think you yeah, there are many roads to to get to the places that God wants you to be.
1: Mm. Well, that's kind of profoundly what your, I guess I would say your mission has been to speak to the church about, right? Is yeah. There are many roads to get to the place where God is taking you. Yeah. Um, And so what are your hopes then for, cause you've been speaking about this and working with people and and bringing awareness and, and really encouraging the church and Christians in general to think deeply about these issues. So what is, what do you see as um, your hope for the next few years in terms of how the church responds to what you've been saying?
0: to what I've been saying. Yeah. (laughs) I have no idea. Because I don't know. I mean, it's a strange thing. Um, Writing a book, for example, it's like bringing up kids. So you have your kids and you, uh, you do your best for them. You bring them up. You teach them as much as you can. Then you send them out into the world and they do their own thing and you have no control over that. And sometimes they come back home and tell you some things that they've done, sometimes they don't. Writing books is is like that. You know, I, I do what I do, then I send them off into the world. And then I come to places like Vancouver. And, <laughs> <laughs> and people say, well, oh, that was really helpful. And think, you, know, you think, well, that's good. But, you know, so yeah. that your, your baby's doing something positive out in the, in the world. So my, my hope is that the, the work that I've done and all those different facets con- continues to do that. Because what it's intended to do really is to give people different ways of thinking, the tools to think differently in order that in whatever context they are, they can begin to raise issues that wouldn't have been raised had they not read this particular book or thought in this particular way. So my hope is, from from my work, is it, it continues to do that. Um, my hope for the church in relation to mental health is that organisations like Sanctuary really begin to be taken seriously and, and taken credibly. And I, I think that you know when you when you see ministry done well and done professionally, you take it seriously. And when you see it done from the perspective of the gospel and when people begin to see that actually this is not just a specialist ministry for people who are interested in these kinds of things, there's actually something fundamental about what we are as church, then I think you begin to get that shift and begin to take people seriously, uh, take the issues seriously. One of the problems that people don't have, uh, one of the problems people have at the moment is they don't have resources. And I think that things like Sanctuary Project and the the resources that come from that are exactly what people need. So, my hope is that other resources will come to the fore and this is the beginning of something big and and powerful.
1: And um, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, but I'll give you a bit of time to think about this. So, what would you say to somebody who um, is just beginning their journey of understanding disability and how it relates to the church? So, they're just a regular church member, um, maybe they serve coffee or they greet at the door, and they really realize that they want to encourage more inclusivity in their church, but mm. they're just at the beginning of that path. What would you say to them?
0: I would say to them just do it because it isn't actually very complicated you don't have to be you don't have to go on a training course to be with people. I just think it's not complicated just to be friends with people. I don't think it's complicated just to be, learn how to uh, look at difference w- as if it doesn't matter, yeah, apart from maybe certain practical details that we need to adjust certain things. I think people need to overcome their fear and just, you know, once you hang around with people who are different, you'll become different.
1: <laughs> well, that's beautifully put, John. <laughs> <laughs> It's true, actually, um, the founder of Sanctuary, Sharon, always says it's really good to be friends with people who are different than you. Yeah. Um, as a way to actually challenge the things that you take for granted. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
0: I think Jesus said something like that as well, didn't he?
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking a little bit before we wrap up about actually the stories of Jesus healing. Oh, um, yes. One of my favorites is the, the man in the cemetery and you know, Jesus heals him, but he also does something else. And that is he asks him what his name is. And then he encourages him to go back to his community. Um, and can you just tell me a little bit about how that could be something for the church to think about in terms of their ministry?
0: Uh, one of the interesting things about uh, the healings of Jesus is the way in which he sends people back. He's exactly out that way, and he does the same thing with the lepers. You know, he says, "Go back to the temple," and in John's Gospel, he says, "Go back to the temple and testify." It's always, I mean, it's, it's, a, yeah. it's a key word in John is testify. So go and tell these people who I am, and when they know who I am. He hoped that they would be changed. Of course, people didn't. The temple people didn't do that, um, and I think there's something profoundly important about enabling. People to testify, to tell their story, to, and tell their spiritual story of how and they are with Jesus, how Jesus has been in their lives, where they're going with Jesus. Uh, and that's not, you don't have to be healed to do that. I mean, the healing narratives bring it to the fore through healing, but to tell that story and to have space to tell that story in a way that is credible and is not tainted by people's associations or assumptions about your diagnosis, I think is, is the beginning point for a transformative experience for the, for the whole church. So I think it's a good example, yeah.
1: Anything else that you want to say today or share that kind of brought up in our conversation?
0: Nothing that springs to mind. <laughs>
1: um, I just want to say thank you because I think that it's really important as a Christian and, and somebody walking through faith to challenge the way that we see things mm-hmm. um, and to also challenge the way that we see people. Because, as you said beautifully, we are, we are called to be different, mm-hmm. and that means to engage with and embrace and welcome difference in our own lives yeah. and in the life of our church. Yeah. So, um, on behalf of, well, not on behalf of everyone, but on behalf of myself, and, and I just want to say thank you for doing the work that you do.
0: Oh, that's very kind of you. <laughs> thank, thank you for this.
1: Yeah, and thanks for your time today, John. I'm your host, Sarah Kift, and I'm thankful for the people who helped make this episode happen. Post-production and editing by Jonathan Kift, music by the artist Crash by Car via archive.org, and all funding and support by the team at Sanctuary Mental Health Ministries. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives 4.0 license. Don't change it or sell it, but please share it all you like.